Um, let's open up to Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. So you can have those three places prepared, all right? This is going to be Lesson 168, Part C, and 169, Part A. So don't even try to follow me in your books, okay? <laughs> I'll have it on the tape for Okay, so get those three places marked. Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. All right, and while you're doing that, let me remind you, I don't know if your leaders told you in groups, but this week, just go through question number six in lesson number 169. The alarm cock sounds, just go through, do question number six, but don't do question number seven, all right? So through number six. So you only have six homework questions. Got an easy week ahead of you. Yeah, right. (laughs) All right, let's bow and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together and then get going, okay? Wow, this is early. It's only 10.15. Father God, there is no way that we could ever express our gratitude to you enough to thank you for the fact that while we were all yet sinners... As much at enmity with you as those that we're going to look at this morning who mocked you and abused you and even spit in the face of your son, yet he was willing to die for us, and we do forever thank you for that truth. And may our lives give testimony to the fact that we do indeed greatly appreciate the Lord's sacrifice for us. May we bring you, Father, the glory that you deserve in the midst of a world that that yet spits in the face of your son and ridicules him with their open disdain and all of their false accusations. May you find pleasure, Father, in what takes place here in this sanctuary week after week as we seek to know your son with a growing love and reverence. We pray that you would smile your blessing upon this this small effort to honor him and that you will indeed bless each of us with an increased knowledge of you through him and an increased desire to serve and share him with all that you have blessed us with, our, our time particularly, and our, our talents that are from you and the treasures that are from you. Thank you, Father, that we can... Assemble together yet freely in this country to meet with you through your word. And Father, as we open it, we ask for the nearness and the dearness of sensing the abiding presence of Christ with us. And help us now to to give our undivided attention to your word and to how the Spirit wants to use it individually in each of our lives. For we pray and ask in the blessed name of our Savior. Amen. Well, Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, finally found what he was looking for, an accusation against Jesus that would result in a death sentence. He and the illegally gathered quorum of the Sanhedrin members had charged Jesus with what? Blasphemy for boldly claiming, admitting to being both the Christ and the Son of God. And he went even further than that, didn't he? Because he added... 
by quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1, and Daniel 7, 13, he added saying that um, even though they would put him to death, this is in effect what he was telling them, even though they would destroy the temple of God, they would put him to death, yet he would rise from the dead. The psalm talked about his return, right? So that means he would rise from the dead, he would ascend to the right hand of the Ancient of Days, and receive from him the universal, eternal, indestructible kingdom. And when he returned to establish that kingdom here on earth, things would be different, wouldn't they? He would be their judge. And after hearing this confession... The corrupt and now very delighted Caiaphas shouted, Blasphemy! And then he asked the others, What think ye? And we were told that they all, all, A-L-L, they all condemned him to be guilty of death. Now, there is something very critical about Caiaphas's question, What think ye? Now, of course, he was asking the question, without seeking an honest answer. He was asking to pressure everyone else to answer guilty, right? As a high priest, he should have been the last one to cast his vote and say that he was guilty, but he was trying to intimidate everybody else into agreeing with him and also saying guilty. However, here is something that every person who has ever lived needs desperately to do, and it is exactly what this already prejudiced council of Israel did not do when they were asked that question, what think ye? They did not think that they should honestly investigate Christ's claims to being the Christ and the Son of God. Now, if Dick Nicodemus had been there, I think he would have bounced up and said, well, why don't we give this man an investigation? Why don't we vet him? Why don't we look into his claims and do an honest research and see if he is who he claimed to be? Because wouldn't it be awful if we made a mistake? But I don't think Nicodemus was there. So they didn't think that they should investigate what he had said. Actually, I don't think that they thought at all. They did not think. They merely allowed such things as preconceived ideas, false religion, pride, power, wealth, envy, anger, hatred, uh, peer pressure, and satanic persuasion to blind their eyes and harden their hearts to the truth of the scripture and to the truth of the claims of Jesus Christ. These, if you think about it, are exactly the same reasons that millions and millions of people die and go into eternity lost. The exact same reasons. If only, don't you ever just say, if only, I did that with my father and we did it with my brother-in-law, if only... People would come to the issue of Jesus Christ and the validity of his claims openly and honestly instead of listening to what others tell them. If they would just investigate the facts for themselves. Have you ever read the book Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell? Excellent book to have on your bookshelf. And then he wrote another one. I think it's called More Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Thick books. All of the evidence that is there if you're an honest counsel, not like this one, that judged him falsely, if only people would dismiss the counsel that in every way imaginable condemned Jesus illegally and dishonestly, if only people would truly investigate the Lord Jesus' claims for themselves. You know what? They have everything they need. 
What is all they need? It's a book sitting in your lap. All they need is the Bible. And it's the reason God wrote it. It's the reason God wrote it. And their eternal soul hangs in the balance. But most people dismiss what they haven't even bothered to look into. Have you ever noticed that? They'll dismiss Jesus and the Bible, and they'll, they'll quote you something that might not even be in the Bible, or they'll come up with some excuse that they've heard from somebody else that in their little minds they think sounds good. Why would a holy God, why would a God of love send people to hell? You know, something like that. And they just dismiss even looking at the scripture for themselves. Or they just plain don't care. They're so wrapped up in the cares and concerns of this world that they don't even think about eternity, do they? They think they're going to live forever? I don't know. It just never, ever ceases to amaze me how people will fall for the dumbest things to believe in. Absolutely the dumbest things to believe in. And yet they reject a book like this that is so well documented and so tried and tested and proven. Have you not found that as we study the Lord's life, your faith in him and who he was is just confirmed every week over and over and over again so that your faith eventually is studying his life now for 11 years. Actually, I've been studying it for 20 years because we did this twice. It just has confirmed it's so solid in my life. I have no doubt whatsoever. And I have proof. You know, if anybody would ever sit down, it would take us 20 years to do it, but we could show them all the proofs. (laughs) Have you got a few hours? No, have you got a few years? (laughs) But no, you could really do it in less than that. Just think of the prophecies alone. We're going to look at a few more today. They alone, plus the changed lives. And thank you for this scarf. Goes good with my outfit, doesn't it? (laughs) I love scarves. Um, I love everything. Except broccoli. (laughs) Unless it's cold. I like it cold in a salad, but I don't like it cooked. That's weird. I know. I like raw mushrooms, but I don't like cooked mushrooms. That was free. I just gave you that for free. (laughs) Did I? Yeah, I did. I did. So anyway, the, uh, the unlawfully arrived judicial opinion of the court was... Now was nothing more than a ratification of their predetermined decision. They had already long before predetermined that, you know, it would be expedient for one man to die for the nation. But as of yet, they had not derived this opinion in a formal uh, way, with a formal sentence. So um, they were going to need to confirm the sentence in a more legal-looking setting so that they could tell the people, well, we did things right, okay? So they're going to wait till the sun comes up, because you remember it was illegal to have a trial during the night. They're going to wait for the sun to come up, and then they're going to move this quorum of, or the Sanhedrin to the uh, right place to meet, which is the Hall of Hewn Stones in the temple. And then they're going to just go through you know, a quick little trial where they they have him repeat, who are you? And he does repeat it, and then they condemn him to death. But that's just an excuse so they can tell the people, we did it legally. But even in that third trial that they're going to have, it's not legal because what day are they going to hold it on? For one thing, I could point out a lot of other things, but for one thing, they're going to actually have it on the Passover. And remember, they were never allowed to have a capital sentence trial on a feast day. 
So there's still a lot of things going to be wrong with that third trial. And furthermore, did you notice that after they adjourned, no one made any mention of the rabbinically required three-day period of fasting and prayer to follow a verdict of condemnation? Instead of, you know, adjourning to come back in a few uh, hours when the sun came up, um, did did anybody jump up and say, well, remember, we've got to have three days to fast, and then we come back and take a revote. Nobody mentioned that. Instead, what we learn next is that some of these supposed spiritual leaders of Israel delighted to take it upon themselves to torment the accused for a little while. This might be, after all, their only chance to do so since to get him killed the way they wanted to. And how did they want to kill him? Did, was it by way of stoning? No, by way of crucifixion. So to get him killed by way of crucifixion, because cursed is any man that hangs on a tree. They knew that in the Old Testament, so everybody would say, well, he's cursed of God, so he can't be the Messiah. They would have to turn him over to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. So now was their chance to get their desire for vengeance on him out of their system. So everything they did next to the Lord Jesus Christ was in absolute direct contradiction to both their own laws, the Jewish laws, as well as Roman law. You know, they were under obligation to also obey Roman laws, weren't they? Everything they do next is is just terrible in disobedience to both Roman and Jewish law. But then nothing they did, really, nothing they did was um, was legal when it came to the treatment of the Lord Jesus. I got to thinking, you know, completely pagan, uncivilized societies would have conducted a more fair trial than what Jesus got um, at the hands of the Jewish leaders and the Romans, really, didn't he? I mean, you think of some tribe in the middle of nowhere would have given him a more fair trial than they did. And these Jewish leaders, not only in their trials, but in their behavior that we're going to look at next, were really demonstrating, really demonstrating the degenerate spiritual condition of their evil, wicked hearts. So let's look now at what they did to the Lord, which I hate to do, but it's in the scripture, and let's look at it, the mocking of the Lord. And first of all, we're going to read two verses in Matthew 26. So if you look at Matthew 26, verses 67 and 68. You'll see that right after Caiaphas asked that question, what thank ye, and uh, they answered and said he's guilty of death in verse 66. Then verse 67 says, Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? Now let's move over, keep your place there, but also move over to Mark 14, and let's look at verse 65, just one verse here. Verse 65, it says, And some, now notice that I underlined the word some, because that tells us that it wasn't every member of the Sanhedrin, it was just some of them. Some began to spit on him. And to cover his face, that's new, we hadn't learned that in Matthew, they covered his face, and to buffet him, and to say unto him, prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. Now one more place I want you to look, and that's over at Luke, because each of these guys tell us a little bit more than the other one. And Luke, in 22, starting at verse 63... 
And he has this in a little bit different sequence, but most commentators go with the sequence given by Matthew and Mark instead of Luke. But Luke, Luke tells us in verse 63, And the men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that smote thee? And then he gives us this information, And many other things blasphemously spake they against him. All right. The highest insult to a Jew, and really to a person of any background, I believe, would be for someone to spit in your face. Worse than even being slapped in the face would be to be spit upon right in the face. Just awful. It was considered, if someone did that to you in Old Testament times, it, you, you were considered unclean. And you had to be separated for a period of seven days, just like leprosy. Of course, leprosy could be longer. But it's just a horrible thing. It was an act that expresses the greatest contempt and indignation possible. Right? Um, to this day, I think, I may be wrong because I'm not sure where Abs- what happened to Absalom's tomb. But Absalom, the son of David who rebelled against his father had a tomb for years in Israel. I don't know whether it's been destroyed or not. Does anybody know? I remember seeing it, but every time Jewish people would walk by Absalom's tomb, you know what they would do? They'd spit on it. I grew up, you know, in the Greek Orthodox Church, and um, the priest, when, when he was doing certain things, I never understood what he was doing as a child because everything was in Greek. It was Greek to me. <laughs> I did know some Greek, but I didn't know all his Greek. But he, like when he was baptizing a child, he would be doing his little stuff, and then he would turn and go like this. And if you, did any of you see the movie The Big Fat Greek Wedding? Oh, to me it's hilarious because it's like my life. I mean, it's just exactly like my life. You know all the guys she went through and dated all those Greek guys? I dated every one of those guys. <laughs> I did, really. I mean, it was unbelievable. I thought, this is my story. (laughs) I had to buy that movie. (laughs) But um, do you remember when, I don't know if it was her mom or her, that little old grandmother all dressed in black, and and they would go, (laughs) it's so true. That's what they do. All my aunts would do that. And my mother, who wasn't even Greek, picked it up, and she would do that. And you know when I finally learned years later why the priests did that and why all the Greeks do that? It's whenever they talk about the devil or something bad, then they'll go, (laughs) they're spitting on the devil. And I thought, well, that's kind of neat. How about us doing that? Every time we mention the (laughs) devil. You go ahead. (laughs) But uh, anyway, it's just an awful thing, isn't it? To, To spit, especially to spit. I don't even like it when I see a guy walking down the street. I think that's gross. I don't like it either. But anyhow, um, this is exactly what some of these members of this religious crowd did to Jesus. We see they quickly turned into an insensitive, cruel mob, didn't they? Just like when they're standing at the foot of the cross. But this is what they did. Think about this. To their own long-awaited Messiah. Incredible. Spit in the face of their own Messiah. God, the creator God, too. The foul spit of one man after another 
was despicably aimed right at the Lord's face until that mixed saliva literally dripped from his forehead and his nose and his eyes and his cheeks and his mouth and his beard down to his shoulders and his chest. Just horrible to think about. His, his whole face covered with their spit, their foul, stinking spit. Now, why in the world did God incarnate silently stand there and take all of that? Why didn't he, because he certainly had the power to do it, why didn't he just paralyze all of them? That would have been my temptation if I had that kind of power. Why did he endure such despicable shame? You tell me. Why did he do it? Exactly. He did it for you. And he did it for me, and he even did it for those who were right then spitting in his face. You see, even then, he was extending grace to those at enmity with him so that ultimately he would would, uh, bring glory to his Father in heaven by bringing people into his kingdom. Isn't it amazing when you think about this that not one of those scripturally knowledgeable men who were doing that to the Lord, showing their disdain for him by spitting in his face, that none of them realized that they were actually fulfilling Old Testament messianic scripture. Amazing. 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah, the Lord himself, spoke through the prophet prophet Isaiah and said these words, I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Isaiah 50, verse 6. You know the Lord knew because he knew the Old Testament, didn't he? He actually wrote it. Those were his words. I hid not my face from their shame and spitting. But he had predicted this to his own men back in Mark 10. I think it's like verse 24 or something. He had said that, you know, he would be, the elders and the chief priests would arrest him and they would scourge him and they would spit in his face. He had predicted all of this. So he's not shocked by this. Interestingly, do you remember back about six years or so ago when we were studying the Lord's spitting miracles? Do you remember how many spitting miracles the Lord had? Two. We called him his spitting miracles. He uh, used his own spit on two occasions. One was to open the ear, or at least two recorded occasions. One was to open the ears of a deaf man. And because the man was deaf, he couldn't speak very well. So the Lord put his own spit in the man's ears and on the man's tongue, and the man could instantly hear and speak perfectly. That was in Mark 7. And then the second one was in Mark 8 when he used his spit and put, mixed it together with some dirt, and he put it on a blind man's eyes and then told him to go wash it off, and the man could see. You see, God incarnate used his spit to do good to people, to man. Uh, It's too bad that these men who were spitting on him in their contempt for him did not instead have his spit on them. Too bad it wasn't the other way around. Uh, Because his spit did what? It could open ears and tongues and eyes to hear and to speak and to see the truth. Now, do you think that when they spit on him, they defiled him? If he was not condemned to death, would he have been put into isolation for seven days because that spit defiled him? No, it's the same situation as with lepers. Remember, if he touched a leper, 
did he become defiled by the leprosy or did the person he touched become cleansed by his purity the other way around that spit when it touched him it was instantly purified think of that and it's not quite so horrible is it both mark and matthew tell us that these chief priests and elders and scribes also did what Buffeted. It says they buffeted him. And Mark and Luke tell us, that's why we have to read all of them, <clears throat> Mark and Luke tell us that they covered his face or they blindfolded him before they buffeted him. And the Greek word that is translated as buffeted actually refers to a strike with the fist. That's why I'm doing this. <coughs> they fist punched him. That's what they were doing. They covered him. He couldn't see what's going on, and they kept fist punching. And just think, after they, you know, all that spit is on his face, and then they cover his face, and then they're punching him in the face, and repeatedly, the Greek is, you know, they kept on doing it. They used him as a punching bag while they made a mocking little game out of it. You know, he says he's the Christ. He says he's the Son of God, so let him prove it to us. Prophesy to us. Who smote you? Which one of us? Tell us our name. You think he could have told them their name? Oh, yeah. He could have told every one of them their names. Now that they had decided his fate, all restraint in unleashing their hatred against him is broken down. They, they have despised him for a long time, haven't they? But they feared before this, they feared his power. I mean, just in the garden, he said, I am, and everybody tumbled backwards. For this, they, they feared him, and they feared his popularity with the multitudes. And now, now, he's probably still in chains. Now, they want to demonstrate that they have no fear of him. It's obvious by now that he had no intention of resisting, right, by this stage, he didn't resist in the garden. He didn't resist in front of Annas. Um, you know, remember when that temple guard slapped him in the face? He's not going to resist, and they, they realize that now. He's been condemned, and he will die. This one who has caused them so much aggravation for the past three and a half years is now absolutely, in their sight, he's absolutely pitiful. I mean, look at him standing there, so pathetically weak. No army has come to his rescue. You know, they knew that his disciples had all scattered from him in utter panic. And if they were going about the city, waking up the multitudes, don't you think by now they would have returned with an army to rescue him? But by, by this point, they say, they just scattered. They're, nobody's coming for him. He's just going to, he's at our mercy. And so they're going to take out their vengeance on him. And they probably thought this, if he truly was who he said he was, why in the world would God his Father allow him to get as low as this? So he's nothing but what we just declared him to be. He's nothing but a blasphemous deceiver. So spit, spit, punch, punch. And they had their little fun playing, with their, playing their little game of mockery, punching him and ridiculing. Who did that one to you? Christ. Who did that one to you? What's his name, thou son of God? Ha, ha, he, he. Can't you just picture them? These are the religious rulers. You know, it's just incredible. It'd be like our Supreme Court doing this to somebody. Amazing. It was just a big joke to them. And when they got tired of getting absolutely no response from him, and I guess eventually when their fists started to hurt, they turned him over. They just gave him over to the temple guard. 
the men that held Jesus, Luke called them. Um, Mark called them the servants, and Matthew called them others. And these guys, these servants and these temple guard, picked up where the council members had left off. The guardsmen did what? They imitated their superiors in all of this, mocking and, and smiting Jesus with the palms of their hands. I did notice that they didn't do the spitting, though. They were a little more civilized than the spiritual rulers. They didn't spit, but they did play that little game. And they hit him, it says, not with their fists, but it says the palms of their hands. That might sound a little better, but when you know what the real Greek word is for palms, it's rods. The rods of their hands. My Bible actually has a footnote explaining that. The word could be palms or rods, but it's believed it really is rods. And that does fulfill another Old Testament messianic prophecy. Do you know what Micah 5.1 says? Micah 5.1 comes right before Micah 5.2. That's really profound. But you all know what Micah 5.2 is, don't you? Say yes. You should. We talked about it last week, and that's the, that's the verse that predicts where Jesus would be born. The ruler of Israel would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. I remember then it says, whose goings forth have been of old from everlasting. We just looked at that verse last week. Well, the verse right before that talks about the ruler of Israel, and it says this, they shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon his cheek. So they were also fulfilling Old Testament messianic prophecy. Luke twenty two sixty five tells us that many other blasphemous things against Jesus, they said. Isn't it strange that they had just unanimously accused Jesus of committing blasphemy against God? But the fact of the matter is, who are the real blasphemers here? They are. Did you, you know, when you looked at those 16 crimes in, in the, uh, the law of Moses that were, so you could kill, put somebody to death? Sentence them to death, those 16 crimes. I hope you all at least circled the one blasphemy. They were all guilty of blasphemy against the Son of God, weren't they? What else did you circle? Pre, premeditated murder. They were guilty of premeditated murder. What else did you circle? Anything else? Adultery. I did because I thought, you know, they've commi- they committed spiritual adultery against God. And I even maybe circled kidnapping because they had kidnapped the Son of God with no charge against him uh, from the Garden of Gethsemane. And I don't know, maybe you circled some others too. But blasphemy, definitely. They were the ones who were guilty of blasphemy. They were doing everything that they could think to do to dishonor, to mock, and to torment the very Son of God, the God of the universe. Actually, the Creator God, their Redeemer God, the one who was going to go to a cross to die for them. And where was Caiaphas? In all of this, you know, he had displayed such theatrical drama when he refused, when he professed to abhor blasphemy coming from the mouth of Jesus. And yet he does nothing to stop all this illegal and cruel treatment of his prisoner who has not yet had a formal trial. Jesus has not yet had a formal trial. A, a legal trial. He's not even had two witnesses against him. They got him to incriminate himself, which was against the law. And he, he should not, even in that case where they accused him, he shouldn't have suffered any punishment until a three-day fast 
of his judges, and then they gather together and take a revote, right? And since that shouldn't happen until after a feast day, they're doing it on the very day of Passover, right? Well, that one sounds close. <laughs> um, and you know what, ha- what started the next day after Passover was the seven-day-long Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they shouldn't try anybody for a capital offense during that whole feast. So that would be another week. And then, well, there was also on Sunday was the Feast of First Fruits. But anyway, technically, they should not have even had a trial of him until at least another eight days. And then you would have to add the three days of fasting and prayer onto those eight days, so they shouldn't even have, uh, you know, killed him until 11 days legally. But everything else they did was illegal anyway, but I'm just showing you one point there. Would have been 11 days later before they could have put him to death. But who, who's in charge of all this? <laughs> we know, because he had to die on the Passover to fulfill prophecy. But where was Caiaphas in this? You know, I I would not put it past him that he was actually the first one to spit on the Lord Jesus. Would you? I wouldn't put it past him one bit. Started this whole thing. Yet even in the midst of all this criminal brutality and this appalling injustice of this whole situation, the Lord's grace and his majesty remain untarnished. Peter would write years later regarding the Lord at this time that there was no guile found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not in return. And when he suffered, he did not offer forth any threats in return. Instead, what did he do, Peter tells us? The Lord Jesus trusted himself into the hands of his father. And Peter also said that he set the example for us. Remember that when we're not being treated like we think we should be by someone, that we should follow his example and just trust everything into the hands of the Lord God who will judge righteously. This was the Lord's hour to drink the cup of suffering for you and for me. And he willingly and he humbly submitted himself to do so. Well, I just spoke of Peter, didn't I? So it's at this point in the narrative of the Lord's unjust sufferings and uh, that the Spirit takes the reader's focus back to the scene with Peter in the high priest's courtyard. And by the way, maybe, maybe the reason that Peter knew that the Lord did not speak out that there was no guile in his mouth and that he did not revile in return and he issued forth no threats to those who were mocking him and doing all of this to him. Maybe the Peter reason Peter knew that is because he could observe the whole thing taking place in the courtyard below. Now, many commentators suggest this, and the reason for it is because there is such easy eye contact made between the Lord and Peter. After his third denial, we'll get to that later in this lesson, but the Lord turns and he looks at Peter so they can see each other. So perhaps there was a large window in this, on the second floor where all this was taking place with the Lord, uh, maybe an open window, or maybe they had taken him out onto some kind of a balcony of sorts where Peter below could see or hear at least what was taking place above. 
that's a real possibility. We don't know, of course, for sure, but we could speculate that seeing such treatment of the Lord Jesus would have increased Peter's fear, right? Um, and therefore the intensity of his denials. Now, it's, it's been since before our Christmas, Thanksgiving, New Year's break that we talked about Peter. Remember, we left him hanging with just one denial. We all prayed for him that he wouldn't deny the Lord two more times, but didn't happen. <laughs> and uh, we haven't looked at him since then. So if you remember, we had learned that he had fled the Garden of Gethsemane with the other disciples. But somewhere along the line, as he's running, he regained some of his courage and he followed the Lord from afar off. Remember that? He followed the Lord and the arresting party. And that party took Jesus first to Annas. Of course, Annas and Caiaphas obviously lived in the same palatial residence because Peter stays in the courtyard during both trials. But uh, Peter gained entrance into that courtyard of that home by way of the assistance of an unknown disciple. And we speculate about who that might have been. And it was shortly after his entrance into that courtyard that he was questioned several times by the young gatekeeper servant girl about his relationship to Jesus as a disciple. And Peter quickly responded in the negative, didn't he? Peter, who had been, first of all, standing with uh, the, the crowd of um, temple guards and servants and, you know, servants of the high priest, he is standing with these men around a fire, warming his hands. And then we noted he even sat down with these men, first standing, and then he sat down. Well, we learned that he removed himself from that fire after being questioned. He went to the porch. I'm going to read about that in a minute in Matthew 26, if you want to go back to Matthew 26. Now, the, the porch, he went over to the porch because that would have been the second warmest place. And remember, it was a chilly night. Even though the Lord had been sweating earlier, drops of blood, it was a chilly night. He uh, would go to the porch because it would be at least protected by one wall and would have had an overhead roof. But the important issue for Peter to remove himself from the fire to the porch was that he would not be so conspicuous. You know, standing around the fire, it was showing his face to everybody, right? So he moves himself over to the shadows of the porch. And then according to Mark, who has a first-hand account of what went on that night, because you know the book of Mark is really the gospel of Peter because Peter told everything to Mark and John Mark wrote it down. But you really, it's essentially the gospel of Peter. He was there, so Mark gives us the most accurate, complete story of this whole thing. But Mark says that it was when he went out to the porch that the first cock crew. All right, and that first crow of God's alarm cock, I call it the alarm cock, was a warning to Peter, right? Time to wake up, Peter. Peter's been sleepwalking, I think, ever since he fell asleep in Gethsemane. It's like a dream, this whole thing. He's still not awake. <laughs> and he's denied the Lord, and the cock crows, and he doesn't even hear it. You know, do you have a snooze alarm on your alarm cocks? Clocks? I actually do have an alarm cock out there in the yard. We have roosters and chickens. and so. <laughs> but you have a snooze alarm. I tell you, my husband, half the time, he hears it, but he doesn't hear it. You know how that goes? I hear it, but he doesn't hear it. He just goes right on sleeping through that first alarm of the alarm clock. Um, and that's what Peter did. He had the snooze alarm, you know, the cock crew once. Arr, arr, arr. I can do that pretty good. 
I can make a lot of animal sounds. When you have seven grandchildren, you learn how to make animal sounds. <laughs> you want to hear my peacock? Honk, help! That's exactly what they do. <laughs> this is good. People listening to this tape are not going to believe it. It'll be fun. <laughs> but Peter, Peter's, he didn't even hear that alarm cock. Anyway, if he had been alert spiritually, he would have left the scene, wouldn't he? Immediately, don't you think? He should have left the scene immediately after realizing he couldn't stand the temptation and he had just denied the Lord for the first time. Um, but it seems that he didn't yet realize what he do, had done. And even when that cock crew, he, um, he just kept staying there with the wrong crowd. He wasn't prepared as he should have been, and therefore he didn't leave. He wasn't yet remembering. We're going to talk about remembering later on, but he wasn't remembering yet. Well, we had to leave Peter after his first denial so as to go to the scene of the Lord as he stood there before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin Council. But now that we have completed our look at that second Jewish trial, we return, the Holy Spirit takes us back to the narrative of what was going on in the meantime with Peter down in the courtyard. So let's look at Matthew 26, 71 to 75. You're going to have to go with me to all three Gospels again, so get ready. Let's look, first of all, at Matthew 26, starting at verse 71. Um, it says, And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them, notice that, said unto them, who would that be? The men, you know, temple guard and servants standing around the fire, standing there in the courtyard. She said unto them, that was there, this fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew. And Peter did what? He woke up, girls. <laughs> Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. Okay, let's see what Mark tells us. Mark 14. Look at verse 69. Mark 14, 69. If you'll notice right above... He had gone out to the porch, and that was when the cock crew the first time is in verse 68. And then we look at verse 69, and it says, And a maid saw him again, and began to say to them that stood by, This is one of them. And he denied it again. And a little after, Luke tells us an hour after, they that stood by said again to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean, and thy speech agreeeth thereto. But he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom ye speak. And the second time the cock crew. And Peter called to, the, to mind the word that Jesus said unto him, Before the cock crow thrice, thou shalt deny me twice, the, thou shalt deny me thrice. And when he thought thereon, 
It's an interesting Greek word. It literally means when he threw his thoughts upon, he wept. All right, one more account. Let's look at Luke. Luke 22, verses 58 to 62. Luke 22, starting at verse 58. And after a little while, another saw him and said, Thou art also of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And about the space of one hour after, another confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately, notice this, while he yet spake, the cock crew. And Luke is the only one that tells us this. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him before the cock crow, Thou shalt deny me thrice. Well, John also tells us a little bit extra information. I'm not going to have you turn to John 18. I'll tell you about it when we get to it, all right? From Luke's account, we learn that after a little while, there was yet another maid. Now, there was that first maid who was the doorkeeper who got, you know, accused him and he made his first denial. Now we're told that there was another maid who saw Peter. Now perhaps she was another doorkeeper who was coming on duty in the middle of the night to relieve the first girl doorkeeper. We don't know, but it was another maid. And we learn from Matthew twenty six seventy one that when she saw Peter, she spoke these words to the others who were there in the courtyard. This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And this is one of them. And then they, the men in the courtyard, directly asked Peter, Art thou not also one of his disciples? There must have been, you know, a male that formulated that question, which is why Peter answered, Man. I am not. Now, some will get confused when you read all these accounts. It's very easy to get confused. And they'll say, well, why, if it was a girl, did he answer and say, man? (laughs) It's because she accused him, but one of the men asked him directly the question. And he said, man, I am not. That's in Luke 22, 58. This was not only a flat-out denial of his relationship with Jesus, but his lie was made even worse in that he added an oath to it. Matthew tells us that, which he used to give even greater deceit to his lying denial. Now, an oath, a Jewish oath, was really a statement that called on God as, as your witness. By this oath, Peter was making a declaration to his accusers that he was calling upon God as his witness that what he said was true. He was not a disciple of Jesus. Of Nazareth. You see, this made his denial even worse, didn't it? I mean, it was bad already, but it was even worse than bad now. Because this was just really downright blasphemous. We've been talking a lot about blasphemy, but this is blasphemous because he was trying to make God a partaker in his lie. Also, he denied even knowing Jesus. He said, I do not know the man. That means not only am I not his disciple, I don't even know him. If I saw him on the street, I might not even know who he was. I don't know the man. And then, by calling him the man, isn't that dishonoring him? Here's Peter, who had said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now he's been sitting around the wrong crowd too long. 
They've all been mocking him and calling him the deceiver, the man, and all that kind of stuff. And he just picks up their kind of talk. You know what the sure formula for failure is? First of all, run away from Don't go to church anymore. Just run away. And maybe regroup a little bit and start following. But do it from afar off. You know, you don't want to be too fanatical about this Christianity thing, right? So follow him from afar off. Give him a little bit of this, you know, maybe just your Sunday morning. Um, And then start mingling with the wrong crowd. First of all, stand around with the wrong crowd. Then sit down, fellowship with the wrong crowd. Pretty soon you pick up their kind of talk, right, about Jesus? It's a sure formula for failure. And if it worked with the chief apostle, it'll work with you too. We've seen it, haven't we? Over and over and over again with people. I couldn't, again, help but contrast what was going on just um, inside the palace with what is going on outside the palace down in the courtyard. Inside... Jesus spoke the truth unhesitatingly and boldly when he was put under an oath to the living God. Even though he knew that when he did speak the truth when he was put under an oath, it would mean his own death, right? On the other hand, and that's because there was not one ounce of the fear of man in Jesus. But on the other hand, Peter was so full of the fear of man that he put himself under an oath to add credibility to his lies. And why did he do that? In order to save his own life. So you see the contrast there? Why did Peter fail? Why did Peter fail? Well, he had a pride problem. Peter had a pride problem. Peter Piper picked up. Peter had a pride problem. Even though he likely would not have admitted this, he did look down on the other men. He did. Deep in his heart, he thought that he had the greatest devotion to the Lord and that he was the most courageous of all the disciples. That's why when the Lord predicted that they would all desert him, remember, smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter, you're all going to desert me tonight? Peter, none of the others spoke up, did they? But Peter said, although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And then when Jesus predicted his three denials, Peter adamantly replied, I should die, uh, if I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Oh, 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 what had he just done? Not only denied his discipleship, but he denied even knowing Jesus, didn't he? And then he dishonored him. But he had said, I won't deny thee in any wise. He was telling Jesus, really, that he was mistaken, wasn't he? He was disagreeing with Jesus. Remember long ago when Jesus said he would have to die? And he said, oh, Lord, far be it from you. You, you No, that's not going to happen. He was always disagreeing with the Lord. Peter even boasted, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. You see, Peter could see the others falling and failing because, you know, in various different ways they were all weak, but not him. Mm -mm. Remember, I'm the one that jumped out of the boat, Lord, and walked on the water for a while anyway. Now, isn't it easy for you and I to fall into this same kind of trap? We can look at other Christians... And understand, oh, I, you know, we can understand why they slipped and fell 
And we can always find some area in them that we can judge to be inferior to ourselves. And then, you know, that's teeter-totter theology. Then we can pat ourselves on the back, can't we? Well, I'm not like them. I would never have failed. But the fact is that there is no sin that any other believer has committed that you and I are not also capable of committing if we were in the same circumstances. You know, this is so important for us to know. God does not look at any one of us as being superior to another. He knows what we don't know. He knows that if we were in their shoes, we may have just as well done the same thing. We're all in different circumstances. You don't know what's going on behind my doors of my house. I don't know what's going on. You know, we all have different circumstances. And for us to point the finger and say, well, I wouldn't have done that if I was her. How do you know? You're not in her shoes. You're not in his shoes. We're all capable. You know, the heart is desperately wicked. It is so wicked and deceitful. Above Who can know it? We can't know it ourselves. We can't even know our own hearts. God doesn't look at any of us as superior. You know what? The, the truth is we're just all at different points in the maturity process, this, you know, sanctification process. So th- those of us that might be a little bit ahead in our maturity, you know, be patient with those who are just coming on board and are maybe a little less mature. God gave us time, didn't he, <laughs> to get where we are, and we're not there yet. None of us. Will. But the good news is that one day we will all be perfect. We will all be like Christ. Isn't that wonderful to look forward to? Peter definitely, however, had an inflate, inflated opinion of himself, which was why he thought that he was more devoted, braver, stronger, whatever, than all the others. But pride cometh before a boom. For a fall. Peter did fail. He was not as strong as he thought he was. When it came right down to it, you know what Peter turned into? A coward. He turned into a coward. And what made his failure even worse than the other disciples is that they had not boasted as he did. They didn't say to the Lord, oh, we won't ever run away. We won't ever deny you in any wise. And none of them did deny the Lord, did they? They didn't boast, and neither did they deny the Lord, because they didn't put themselves into the circumstances that Peter put himself, you know, where he shouldn't have been with the wrong crowd. Another thing that caused Peter's fall was that he had not listened to the Lord's warnings. He had disregarded them, putting his own ideas about himself over what Jesus had revealed about him. Remember, Jesus said, Satan hath desired to have you, to sift you as wheat. And um, he had told him he would deny him, but he didn't agree. He, He put his own ideas about himself above those of what the Lord revealed. Nor did Peter heed another warning from the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did the Lord say to all of them then, and particularly Peter and James and John? Watch and pray, lest you fall into temptation. Watch and pray, because the Spirit is willing... But the flesh is weak, Peter. But Peter slept instead of praying. And Jesus even provided a way of escape for all the disciples, didn't he? He asked them twice when they came to arrest him, Who seek ye? 
Jesus of Nazareth, so you seek me, so let these go. He was providing a way of escape for them. But even though Peter you know, did run, what did he do? What he shouldn't have done. He turned around, came back, went to the wrong crowd. You know, there were two places that Peter should have been instead of where he was, in the courtyard with the wrong crowd. One place would have been with the other disciples. I don't know where they ran to. Maybe they ran back to Bethany, Martha and Mary's home, Lazarus. He should have been with the other disciples. And you know as the leader what he should have been doing with them? Having a prayer meeting. He should have said, you know what? He was the leader of the group. You guys, we really failed the Lord in Gethsemane. We blew it. He asked us to pray for him and we weren't. Let's pray for him now. And they could have had a a wonderful prayer session for the Lord and a time of encouragement for one another because they could have said, well, you know, put their heads together and remembered what he had told them. He said this is going to happen, and it is. But do you remember that he said three days after they killed him he would rise from the dead? They could have been an encouragement to one another if they had put all their resources together and they were praying. Where was the other place it would have been better for Peter to have been? I got to thinking, why didn't he, since he was disobeying anyway, why didn't he? He got himself into the courtyard. You know, Peter's pretty clever. He could have just gone up the stairs and burst into that courtroom up there and said, here I am. I am going to be a witness for the defense of my Lord. Let me tell you what I have seen this man do. Couldn't he? I mean, oh, wouldn't that have been much better? Even if they threw him in prison, cut his head off, or stoned him to death, that would have been far better than what he did do in the courtyard below. You see, in the upper room, the upper room, back at pa- you know the Passover, where they had Passover, in the upper room, safely surrounded by the other disciples, and with Jesus right there, Peter boasted vehemently about his fidelity. But in the lower courtyard where he had put himself smack dab in enemy territory. Jesus isn't with him anymore. The other disciples are not with him anymore. He's unprepared because of pride, and he's unprepared because he has not been in prayer. He is now extremely vulnerable to the attacks that caught him completely by surprise. They shouldn't have because he'd been forewarned. Don't you think if you were forewarned that before the next sunrise you would deny the Lord three times, that you would be expecting some kind of a challenge from somebody? But he was not. He was just completely caught off guard. It's like the Lord said that. He didn't believe it, so he just dismissed it. I would never deny you, so he just dismissed it from his mind. He was completely caught. He was, they caught him on his blind side. And he had some blind spots about his person, didn't he? We all do. But they came from sources that he never, ever, in a million years would have expected. You know how Peter's fall came? From females. Uh-oh, watch out. <laughs> I mean, the third one was from a man, but the first two denials came from young servant girls. Would Peter have ever thought he could have been brought so low by women? (laughs) Watch out, we have a lot of power. Remember Elijah? He was so bold and brave with the 400 prophets of Baal. But then one woman is after him and he just goes into total depression and despair and wants to take his life. Jezebel. We have a lot of power, ladies. Be careful what you do with it. (laughs) But even after two embarrassing failures, Peter still trusted in himself enough to stick around in enemy territory. We learn 
that um, here was a pro- there was approximately an hour interval before the occasion of Peter's third and final denial. So he has an hour after his second denial that he added the oath to that he could have gotten out of there. Why in the world didn't he wise up and see what was going on? The Lord's predictions about his denials were in the process of being fulfilled. So why did he stick around in the enemy camp? Why didn't he get out of there, stop putting himself in the midst of all these temptations? Maybe, maybe he believed that uh, he, he was, uh, could somehow still rescue the Lord. Maybe he was trying to show Jesus and the other disciples that, after all, he would not desert the Lord, his master. The other guys might have turned and run away to who knows where. And yes, he did initially also run, but he had gathered his courage and he was going to show them all that he was brave enough to even stay there in the heart of enemy territory. Maybe that's what he was thinking. I don't know. But uh, what Peter obviously still seemed to have completely forgotten was the prediction of those three denials before the cock crowed twice. Not only were his spiritual eyes extremely cloudy, but his spiritual ears were still not attuned, even after two denials and one warning of that alarm cock, you know, the the, uh, snooze alarm. He was still sitting clueless, clueless as to what's going on. He's still sleeping. We could say he's still sleeping. All right, as we mentioned earlier, it's been largely determined that during this hour interval of time, Peter may have been able to see from his position below in the courtyard much of the abuse that Jesus was enduring, first at the hands of the religious rulers and then at the hands of the temple guard. And even if he didn't witness that abuse, surely he could hear a lot of the mockery and laughter that was going on. And don't you know his insides must have just been turned just upside down, butterflies and the whole thing, as he realized the surreal horror of everything that was happening, and yet he still would not leave. Now he seems to have returned back to the courtyard from the porch in this hour interval. He goes back out to the courtyard. Maybe it's because from the courtyard he could better see what's going on. Under the porch he might not have been able to see so clearly. Um, Anyway, there's a group of men, and they're maybe incited by what they see going on or hear going on upstairs and they begin after an hour they begin to again again question Peter their challenges consist of three different areas they challenge him because of his dialect because of his uh, discipleship and his damage what he had done in Gethsemane is coming back remember what he did in Gethsemane cut off Malchus's ear First of all, uh, he's challenged about his dialect. One of them says, Surely thou art one of them because your speech betrays thee. He was from Galilee. I guess they spoke different. They, they just, you know, we can tell a southerner from a northerner. I can tell if somebody comes from Boston or even Connecticut. You know, we know. And he spoke exactly like a Galilean. Um, and then another one said of a truth, this fellow was also with him for he's a Galilean. And then his sword swinging episode comes back to him. This is in John. You don't see this in anybody but John. John eighteen twenty six says that one of the servants of the high priest who was a kinsman of Malchus... He's one of Malchus's relatives, and he was there in the garden. He said, did I not see thee in the garden with him? Uh-oh. Things are getting pretty hairy for Peter, aren't they? I mean, if they, if they saw him take out his sword and cut off his relative's ear, 
they could pretty maybe be at the point of wanting to turn on Peter and do something to him. So it's getting really rough. And he's outnumbered, and he hit bottom. He's now frantic to shake off his identification with Jesus. So what did he do? He not only denied discipleship, denied knowing Jesus, calls him again the man, but he adds something else. He begins to curse and to swear. You see how things are progressing? First time he just said, I'm not his disciple, when the first girl. Then the second time he adds an oath and calls down God to be his witness. And now he's just reverted right back to being Simon the fisherman. The fisherman language comes right out, doesn't it? He begins to curse and swear. So as the accusations against him got got more specific and incriminating, his denials became more intense and sinful. Luke 22.60 tells us, now this is so interesting. Luke 22.60 says that while he was yet speaking, so while he's in the middle of cussing and swearing and denying that he has anything to do with Jesus, what happened? Three things all happened at the exact same time. I got to thinking about how many threes there are in this whole thing. I mean, there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, of course. There's three Jewish trials. There's three Roman trials. There's three phases of each of the Jewish trials. There's uh, three denials of Peter, right? And now we see three things that happen exactly at the same time, not coincidence at all. Number one, Peter is denying the Lord for the third time with cursing and swearing. He's in the middle of doing that when what happens? And what's the third thing? The Lord turns and there is a look that passes between Jesus in the upper room of that palace and Peter down in the courtyard. And that look turns Peter's heart inside out, doesn't it? And instantly, everything changes. It's like I thought it was comparable to Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. Peter's just completely becomes Peter. The old the Simon is gone after this. In that look, it, which went straight to the soul of Peter, it must have just penetrated Peter's heart like a two-edged sword. One edge of the sword sharply convicted him of the greatness of all of his sins, his sins of pride and arrogance and disbelief and disobedience and lack of submission and denials, of course, and blasphemy. It all hit home in a moment's time. Do you remember that first time that one edge of the sword penetrated you and you realized in an instant moment, even though maybe you had been a good girl, You were not a righteous girl in the sight of God at all. You were a sinner. And that's what happened to Peter. He realized. His heart must have felt like it was going to break in two. His conscience must have burned like fire with the guilt of his sin. The other edge of that that look, that two-edged sword look of, of the Lord, was the sadness that he must have seen on the Lord's countenance. But what would have been mixed with that sadness? 
absolutely unconditional love. It was like a look that said, you know, Peter, I have known this about you for a long time. I knew it before you were even born. But I have loved you anyway. I've seen the good in you, Peter. And I know it's going to come out. (laughs) It was like the sovereign look of God reminding one of his straying children, one of his straying sheep, that they had messed up. Yeah, you have messed up. You have wound up in the pigsty, little sheep. What are you doing over there? But I have loved you regardless. And as Peter's eyes met the eyes of the Savior, not only must he have felt the worst pain of his lifetime, now realizing, really, for the first time, the greatness of the sin he had just committed, but he instantly remembered something. He finally woke up out of his sleepwalk. He finally woke up. All three synoptic Gospels tell us this, that he remembered. So it's important. His denials, um, what did he remember? He remembered the word of the Lord. You see, his, his denials were a matter of public record. Everyone in that courtyard heard his denials, didn't they? They could have all written down, we heard Peter deny. But his remembering, nobody heard. Nobody heard his remembering except the Lord. What did he remember? The word of the Lord. He remembered the Lord's predictions. And I thought, oh, this is so applicable to you and I. When we're going through worries and anxieties and we see this world just spinning out of control and topsy-turvy and everything going crazy and and we just get, get so worried and anxious, right? What do we need to remember? Just like Peter, the word of the Lord and his predictions. Everything is going to be all right. If you know him, right? In the long run, it's going to be all right. Peter finally got the point that Jesus' predictions are true. No matter what we think of them, we try to put our ways and thoughts above his, and people mock, oh, he's not coming again. It's been 2,000 years. Ha, 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 he's not coming. No, his predictions are true. You see, Peter had denied the Lord's words long before he ever denied the Lord. If you start denying the Lord's words, you're on a spiral downward. You will eventually wind up denying the Lord when you deny or, or doubt his words. Actually, when you do deny his words, you're denying him already. And finally, Peter collapsed the way he should have a long time ago. He left the courtyard, finally got out of there, and what did he do? He wept bitterly. The Greek is, oh my, he just burst into tears. Ekleyi, he just cried and cried and cried. Maybe he ran back to Gethsemane. Maybe he even went to the same spot where the Lord in agony had sweat drops of blood. Maybe Peter fell on his face at the same place where the Lord had laid prostrate there. And he just wept with a broken heart. His pain was unbearable. But if Peter remembered the words of the Lord, I hope he remembered the whole conversation. Because when Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you and to sift you as wheat, what else did he say? But I have prayed for thee. 
that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. The good news for Peter is that he repented, didn't he? He truly had a repentant heart. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Next week, we're going to see someone else who cried, but it was with tears of regret, not of true repentance. Peter truly was a believer, and he genuinely repented. And as you know, after the Lord's resurrection from the dead, he restored Peter, didn't he? He met with Peter alone, and three times to counteract those three denials, he asked Peter if he loved him. But that's for another day, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, show us each the blind spots in our lives. We don't, we don't even know about them and sometimes don't want to see them, but they are there. We all have them. Show us our weaknesses. Help us to know our own hearts better. And so, so that whatever it takes, we can make easy corrections now instead of having to wait for the hard corrections later on. Father, may we know the truth of the statement that your ways and your thoughts are indeed so much higher and wiser than ours so that we may just take total rest and comfort in the fact that you are in control and our only part is to submit to you, to trust you, and to obey you. Help us to never, ever ignore divine warnings that come from you. We may think that we are strong enough that we don't need them, But we should never, ever underestimate the weakness of our flesh and the proneness of our old old sin nature to take over. So may we take every single warning of Scripture to heart seriously. Help us to remember the words of our Lord, who we love and we pray in his name. Amen.